0: story on the face of the planet
1: is a man-made catastrophe.
0: We need to sound the alarm, this is an emergency, this is a climate crisis, and we need to act now. Because if we don't act now, we risk to create new irreversible situation in which it, whatever we do in the future, we will no longer be able to limit to 1.5 degrees the growth in temperature in the end of the century.
1: And why is it so important to stay below 1.5 degrees? Because even at one degree, people are dying from the climate crisis. Because that is what the United Science calls for. And we're here to say to all of you, on behalf of the House of Representatives and the Congress of the United States, we're still in it. We're still in it. It seems like that
2: connection to
1: how people actually experience and understand climate change is often missing. And then we go... Why don't more people care about climate change? Why would they?
2: There's more political momentum than ever around the goal to reach net zero emissions by 2050. And especially following the release of House Democrats' new action plan for a clean energy economy. But where do we currently stand on that trajectory? And is the path to zero as inclusive as it should be? We talk climate targets and what it's going to take to meet them on this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper, contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. In January, political climate and the public policy think tank Third Way launched a series called Path to Zero, with a mission to shed light on what it will take to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. The seven-part series was designed to look at how people are being affected by the transition to cleaner energy resources and the economic challenges and opportunities created in the process. It also sought to examine the technologies and policies the U.S. will need to implement to drive down carbon emissions and other air pollutants, as well as the politics driving this dialogue. Shortly after the series launched, as we all know, the world turned upside down due to the coronavirus outbreak. And after that, the racial justice movement achieved a new scale and level of momentum following the death of George Floyd. So we tweaked the Path to Zero series to account for these developments and to hear from leaders charting a path forward in this new environment. And we have plans to talk about these topics a lot more, which we'll get to in just a moment. But first, to bookend the monthly series, I got on the line with Josh Freed, the founder and leader of Third Way's Climate and Energy Program, to get a read on where we stand on the journey to net zero emissions by 2050. Then, in the second half of the show, I speak to Nathaniel Smith, founder and chief equity officer at the Partnership for Southern Equity an organization that's working to advance racial equality and shared prosperity in Atlanta and across the South. In that conversation, we address what policymakers are getting right and getting wrong when it comes to creating an inclusive clean energy economy. We end that conversation by discussing what Black voters want to see from candidates in 2020. Hint, it's R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Okay, here's the show. Josh, welcome. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing okay. I think that's the bar that we can all strive for these days. And that's as far as we can get.
2: Yeah, there is a lot to grapple with these days. And we tried to do that actually on our Path to Zero series that we produced with you and the team at Third Way, where we had a chance to talk about some of today's most pressing issues. And we got to speak to a wide range of really great guests. For anyone who missed it, we had on former Energy Secretary Stephen Chu, climate scientist Jane Long, numerous environmental justice leaders, including Tony Reams at the University of Michigan, as well as Congresswoman Debbie Dingell and James Chen at the electric vehicle startup Rivian to talk about the future of clean transportation. And that's not all. But now, as we look to wrap up this series, Josh, I want to ask, where do you think we stand on the path to zero? There's been a lot of news uh, this year so far. We're also in an election year, which is sometimes easy to forget, but then it comes roaring back. So, have recent events derailed progress? Do you think, or even perhaps sped it up?
1: It's a it's a great question, and uh, the most obvious point is we are in a place that nobody could have imagined when we started this series and talking about it in January. The reality is that at this moment. Frankly, we're uh, experiencing so much more uncertainty and chaos brought on not just by the pandemic and the economic crisis that it spurred and demands for racial justice and addressing systemic racism, but also uncertainty about what the future holds so that we don't understand what are the economic activities we're going to really be engaged in that will be emitting less carbon, the same amount, or in a frightening scenario, even more. At the same time, on an almost daily basis now, the Earth is reminding us that climate change is still very much here, and it is impacting every other component of society, whether you read about the news of record temperatures in the Arctic, or record temperatures in the Antarctic, both at the same time of year, which is stunning. Uh, The uh, dust storms that are uh, plaguing the Sahara and will be heading towards the United States, the increased plagues of of locusts and of other pestilence that are uh, damaging crops. So climate is still very much a major issue that we have to deal with. And it's an issue that Uh, We can't wait on until we figure out exactly what the path, the pandemic and the economic crisis is going to take and how it's going to be resolved. Some countries and regions are recognizing this and addressing it. The EU, as it is building its response to rescuing businesses and putting their economies on the path to recovery, are really in a very smart and, and in many ways exciting way, including clean energy and climate goals into what they're doing. Other countries, very much, unfortunately, the same countries that are failing in addressing the pandemic, like the United States, are not, and that's a real concern moving forward.
2: Well, I want to ask about one plan that has been put forward. We're recording this just a couple of hours after the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis unveiled its so-called Congressional Action Plan for a Clean Energy Economy and a Healthy and Just America. Broadly, this 538-page report outlines policies that will help the U.S. economy achieve net zero emissions by 2050 and negative pollution thereafter. That's a goal that we know through our series is necessary in order to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And the report focused on 12 key areas, offering guidance on everything from infrastructure to environmental justice to labor. So, Josh, I understand that Third Way provided advice and some feedback to the select committee on this report. So I'm curious what you make of this proposal. Does this hit on the kind of solutions that you think the country needs to implement?
1: The report the select committee released is an exciting and important document It took not only some of our recommendations, but the recommendations of a wide array of experts and advocates and laid out a path that helps us achieve what scientists make clear are the targets in reducing and ultimately eliminating carbon to address climate change. And it does it in a way that is practical and provides a lot of options for the United States. One of the things that's clear from this report is that there are a lot more areas of agreement amongst Democrats, amongst climate advocates across the ideological spectrum than there are disagreements. It's one of the most exciting and, and, uh, slivers of hope in the climate conversation that we've gotten to this point that a, document and a plan that got input from members and organizations on uh, the farther left side of the spectrum groups in the middle and others were able to inform a path forward that can get us to net zero by 2050 hopefully net zero in the electricity sector by 2040 and all new cars in uh, on the. US market to net zero by 2035. It's bold, but it is based in pragmatism and a reality of what technologies and resources we have today, or we could have within the time frame that the committee report sets up. And that's that's a really different model than we've had in the past.
2: So you just outlined some of the main goals laid out in the Select Committee report: 100% zero emissions car sales by 2035, 100% clean electricity by 2040. The plan also includes new tax credits and incentives for clean energy. It calls for expanding transmission lines and encouraging the development of carbon removal technologies. And it calls for 100% clean new buildings by 2030. Environmental justice is also a major piece. Among the measures, the Department of Energy would be reorganized to prioritize climate and add an energy justice and democracy program to widen access to renewables and energy efficiency in marginalized communities. An analysis of the select committee's report conducted by the nonpartisan think tank Energy Innovation found that it would produce nearly $8 trillion in health and climate benefits by mid-century. And as a side note, we relied on Energy Innovation ourselves in creating our Path to Zero series episode called Decarb Madness, where we had scholars and energy rock stars Jesse Jenkins and Leah Stokes compete against my co-hosts Brandon and Shane on who could put together the best collection of climate policies to decarbonize the electricity sector. And we used Energy Innovation's policy simulator to pick the winner. It was a super fun episode, and it even got a thumbs up from Russell Gold at the Wall Street Journal. So anyone who hasn't listened yet, I hope you go check it out. Anyway, the House Community Report has been widely praised by the climate community for hitting a lot of the right notes. Although some environmental groups, such as 350.org, encouraged even stronger standards for emissions cuts, and they want to see a timeline for ending fossil fuel production and cutting subsidies for oil, gas, and coal. As a reminder for our audience, the House created the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis in January of last year, which came in response to widespread protests for climate action and calls for a Green New Deal. Now, as you noted, Josh, Democrats appear to be rallying around this comprehensive new climate platform. But with that context, I'd like to get your political read on this, Josh, going forward. One thing that came up during the Path to Zero series is that we do have a lot of the technology solutions, not all of them, but most of them. And so hitting the goal really comes down to political will. So what do you think is the likelihood of this House Democrat report passing in one form or another? Is this truly something Democrats will unite around and and pass? And does it matter what Republicans think of it and if it's seen as partisan? What are your thoughts?
1: No, it should not be viewed as partisan. It should be viewed as the result of a country where one party is not an honest broker in the conversation how to address climate change. The Republican Party has unfortunately for years been drifting to a position of extremism that happened before Donald Trump, but really was solidified with his election and has become Really a party that is captured by a very small set of interests and white nationalists. And so they're not going to work on any real solutions to climate change as long as they're in power and as long as they think they can get away with that at the ballot box. What we need is both, unfortunately, but the reality is we need a democratic sweep of the House, the Senate, and the White House and Republicans to recognize that opposition to climate change defeats them when they run for re-election or run for election before you actually have two parties that are both willing to work on climate policy. Until then, the Republicans are going to try to exploit their obstinance and their denial by claiming Democrats are partisan. And that is, uh, it's just, it's so foolish um, that it, it, it can't be, it can't be countenanced.
2: Well, I take that point. And, uh, I think there's a survey from the Pew Research Center that does kind of speak to this dynamic where, as you said, there's these solutions that have broad support, bipartisan support, and yet there's political gridlock. The uh, Pew report found that 65% of Americans believe the government is doing too little to address climate change. An overwhelming majority say they support such policies as large-scale tree planting, tax credits for businesses that uh, capture carbon, and tougher fuel efficiency standards for vehicles. So just to sort of ground that in some numbers, because it is a little confusing sometimes when you have these solutions that seem like they could be adopted at a wide in a widespread way, and yet they're not actually passing in Congress.
1: It's really, it's really sad um, that we don't have a genuine debate or conversation about solutions around climate change. I, I had a panel discussion I was on with uh, former representative, Carlos Corbello, and he kept talking about the policies that he supported, the policies that someone like Bob Inglis, uh, the former Republican congressman from South Carolina, supported the policies that another member of Congress currently in office from Florida supported. But that congressman is also retiring at the end of this term. And the ultimate thing that his discussion exposed is, for whatever reason, whether it's related to their advocacy for climate change or otherwise. The members who step out and are willing to take a risk and talk about climate from the Republican Party are so out of step with their own party that they ultimately leave. And Mr. Corbello's response was: well, we need to get more support from climate activists. And to which I think there's a a real challenge because they support and they're part of a party that they haven't been able to move at all. And yet uh, they're looking for continued support for their efforts and the efforts of, of their party's leadership. And so what ended up striking silence was, how do you change within your own party? How do you get the kind of change that we still need to make some progress on within the Democratic Party to embrace the kind of amb- amb- ambition around climate action that we know from all of the scientific data that we have is absolutely necessary and necessary now and and that's where we need to get so that uh, both parties in congress and particularly the republican party matches the point you made about ambition that the american public is really demanding of their political leaders
2: i want to ask you about innovation One thing that's called out in the House Select Committee report is that the U.S. must harness the technological innovation of the, quote, moonshot and the creativity of entrepreneurs. So when it comes to innovation, Josh, how much more do we need? Because there's this tension between deployment and getting solutions out the door and then investing in the handful of new solutions that we don't have yet. So what do you think is the right balance there?
1: I think we're at a point with... The challenges that climate change is presenting, the speed at which we are seeing the impacts both in terms of temperatures and in terms of how it is affecting the environment and human life, and the unpredictable nature of both the economy and how technologies perform in the real world, we need to stop thinking of this as a binary either or Some of the technologies that we have today could continue to emerge as very cost competitive and more affordable, and we can continue to deploy them at more and more rapid pace, and they will remove the fossil fuel energy and other emitting practices from the economy, and that'll be great. In other cases, they may not succeed nearly as much as we hope they will, and we're going to have to have other options. And even within those other options on the innovation side, we just don't know what's going to work necessarily or not. So we look at the suite of technologies that are really being talked about right now in terms of the innovation side, whether it's direct air capture, carbon capture for particularly natural gas, but also coal, where coal is still being used, increased uh, efficiency and decreased cost in energy storage, as well as advanced nuclear and hydrogen, and say, The government in particular needs to continue to invest significantly in all of these technologies and other technologies as they start to emerge so that we can see which ones can get to the market and will succeed in terms of cost, in terms of uptake, in terms of efficiency and thrive and which ones may not. And we don't have a crystal ball on that, which is part of the reason we are in the current predicament we are with climate change. At the same time, whether it's continuing to build out at a much more rapid scale, the electric vehicle infrastructure that we need and electric vehicles and the wind and solar and efficiency and energy storage that we all know how to do, we should do that as well. We have to.
2: So we are still in the middle of this global pandemic, and there's a robust conversation taking place on how to recover from it, both the health crisis and the economic crisis. But now, as you noted, there's still this urgency to tackle climate change. The House Select Committee report definitely digs into this. Uh, but we want to dig into this ourselves some more over the coming months. So I'm going to take a second to announce to our listeners that we're going to do another series with you, Josh, and the folks at Third Way that we're calling Relief Rescue Rebuild, which will focus on the various ways the U.S. can build back more sustainably. So so Josh, I'd love to get your views on this more specifically. What do you think is important to highlight here as we think about the recovery and how clean energy builds into that and the set of specific policies you think are important to talk about?
1: I'm really excited to see how the next series unfolds and to be working with you on that because the pandemic and the economic crisis that it has spawned, as well as demands for racial justice, have really transformed. The entire conversation on policy and how we think about what this country needs. I mean, if you think about it six months ago, unfortunately, 150,000 people who are now dead were still alive. We had uh, millions of people who are now sick who were healthy then. And we had 21 million people who are now unemployed who are still working. We were talking about climate and clean energy policy in a completely different world. That world has changed. We need to redefine the conversation that we're having and how climate and clean energy can impact it. I'm really excited to explore how all of those different parts work together and what are the smart policies, the smart opportunities that can help move us on the right path to addressing these issues. We're particularly interested in looking at what are the ways that we can reduce both carbon emissions, but also other air pollutants, put us on a path that's much faster than we are today to get to net zero, and create both the jobs that we need even more desperately than we needed several months ago, and address a lot of the environmental wrongs for communities of color that they have been living with for far too long. Uh, We're interested in what are the ways that we can build infrastructure more in a smarter way so that we fix the roads and bridges that we have first, which create more jobs, which can help contribute to a reduction in carbon pollution before we start building new roads, which we found only increases traffic, only increases vehicle miles traveled, and only increases pollution. We're also really excited about the question of innovation and how building and manufacturing and inventing more technologies in the United States can create more jobs in the United States and also can accelerate the displacement of dirtier fossil fuels or dirtier manufacturing policies and practices with cleaner practices. And we can actually start seeing more jobs coming back to the United States than we had before the pandemic and that we can start talking about the creation of those jobs in a way where they can be organized and we can continue to see uh, unions or start to see unions make an inroad into some of the clean energy sectors that they haven't traditionally been able to make inroads in. Great.
2: Great. Well, as a note to our audience, political climate works with Third Way to choose the topics that we'll cover. But I, along with my Democrat and Republican co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton, as we've done with episodes in the past, will continue to ask all the questions that we want to ask and challenge our guests and really probe these issues going forward. To that end, the sustainable recovery that you just described, Josh, sounds great. But at the same time, a lot of people in America are worried. They have immediate health and financial concerns. Others are simply just opposed to more government spending and investing in new things in an uncertain time. So I'm wondering if in this current political climate, you think there's really the political appetite for a bold rebuilding effort. The fact that it's an election year, the fact that there is this rise of nationalism in the US and frankly in other countries around the world too. Do you think that could stymie these efforts? You know, people are feeling worried. There is this virus still going around. People are responding in different ways, but it does maybe reduce the appetite for spending and for risk in some scenarios. So I'm just wondering whether you see this truly as an opportunity or whether it's also going to have some real challenges that go along with it.
1: We'll find out in November. The Election of 2016, we're now living through the consequences of. At the time we were told that it was one of the most consequential elections in our lifetimes in the history of the country, I think even the most apocalyptic and pessimistic person didn't imagine that three and a half years later, we'd be living through what we are today, which is in many ways, the fundamental failure of The Trump administration and the exposure of the bankruptcy of the idea that government should never be trusted and government should play as little role as absolutely possible in not only the lives, but responding to the challenges that people and countries face. Those forces really contributed to opposition to addressing climate change, to skepticism that climate change was real, to the demand Whenever a policy proposal was made or an issue was trying to be addressed that required spending from opponents of that spending that we should worry about the deficit, we should worry about the debt. It's why the election in November really is going to determine the fate of our country and the fate of addressing climate change for decades to come in a way that's even greater than the decision was in 2016, because we now know how high the stakes are, and we now know the dangers of populism and nationalism in a way that was only theoretical four years ago. So we'll find out. I'm optimistic that if Donald Trump can be resoundingly defeated, which is a big if, but if he can be resoundingly defeated, and if his apologists in Congress can also be defeated. There's a real opportunity here for conservatives, including folks like Republican voters against Trump, and a lot of others who have spoken out and said, we don't agree with this man and the people who are enabling him to try a different approach. And that there are a lot of democratic ideas that span the center left and, and the left ideology where there's agreement on that, we could see real action and real uh, impact. But we're we're going to have to hold tight for four months to see if that can can uh, actually get pulled off.
2: So in a few minutes, listeners are going to hear my conversation with Nathaniel Smith at the Partnership for Southern Equity, recorded at a live event that took place this week, presented by Third Way, Our Daily Planet, the newsletter, and the University of Michigan. Nathaniel and I discussed how coronavirus and the racial justice movement are influencing climate and energy policy and politics leading up to the 2020 election. Before we go to that, Josh, I wanted to end by asking what you've taken away from the recent Black Lives Matter protests and calls to end racial injustice. We discussed that as part of this path to zero series, actually before the killing of George Floyd, and I think that's important to note because it, it it shows that these issues are really systemic and have existed for a long time before the spotlight was put back on them. So, how do you think this movement has influenced the climate and energy space? Are you seeing things? Do things look different to you now?
1: Uh, taking a step back from how it influenced the climate and energy space, I'm struck first by how it's influenced me and it's it appears to be influencing everyone around us that conversations about systemic racism acknowledgement that the daily lives of african americans in this country are so starkly different Because of that systemic racism, because of the threat and reality of police brutality, make the position that we're in today and the point of reference from which we have these conversations very different personally, very different professionally than they did three months ago. And it exposes how much of the 400 year legacy of racism that the United States has not come to terms with. Went unspoken amongst too many people in this country, oftentimes myself included. We at Third Way, not because we had any particular insight, but because the timing happened to be right and we realized we needed to, started looking about a year ago at how we could better understand and help address the challenges. That were unique, particularly to the African American community in dealing with climate change. We started this with a series of public opinion research that we'll be releasing in mid-July that looked at what are African Americans' attitudes towards climate within the context of the other issues that they are concerned about on a daily basis? And where is their trust or a lack of trust amongst the people engaging? With these communities on climate. It was eye opening for me also because it reinforced that we needed to do more thinking in all of the policies that we at Third Way work on in clean energy, clean energy innovation, and climate to make sure that the values of equity and inclusion that we practice are also really embodied in all of the policies that we recommend and the outcomes we're trying to achieve that's also happening amongst a growing number of other people and organizations in the climate and energy space. That's exciting. It's long overdue and it's necessary, but it's starting to happen. It's recognizing that we need more voices of color, not just at the table, but also in positions of leadership to help set the policies To help define what we're trying to address and define how the opportunity that we believe clean energy and addressing climate change can present gets shared and shared in a much more equitable manner than it is today.
2: Well, if anyone who's listening has not yet listened to our episode entitled Fighting Energy Injustice and Coronavirus in African American Communities, I do recommend it because there are four really outstanding black voices on that episode talking about uh, the very issues you're describing, Josh, and presenting it from their perspectives and they're presenting their expertise. So I learned a lot through that experience and uh, hope others will too. And with that, let's turn to our next interview. Josh, it was great to catch up with you.
1: Thanks very much. I'm really excited to see what unfolds with the new series.
2: All right. Turning now to my conversation with Nathaniel Smith at the Partnership for Southern Equity. Hi, Nathaniel.
0: Hello, how are you?
2: I'm good. How are you doing this morning?
0: Good to see you this morning.
2: Excellent. Well, to our listeners here, again, I'm Julia Piper and with me here is Nathaniel Smith, Founder and Chief Equity Officer at the Partnership for Southern Equity. Nathaniel, the Partnership for Southern Equity is a multi-issue organization. You're working to advance racial equity and shared prosperity in Atlanta and across the South. The issues that you include, that you focus on, include energy equity. And I wanted to start by explaining what exactly that is in your view and how that fits into the current broader discussion we're having today around racial injustice. Could you start us off there, please?
0: Well, thank you, Julia, for starting with that question. Um, it is a question that I'm asked a, a great deal um, in reference to the work that the Partnership of Southern Equity advances around climate justice. Um, as an organization, we define energy equity as the fair distribution of the benefits and burdens from energy production and consumption. I mean, it's that simple. You know, how can we work to ensure that there is a fair distribution of not just the burden of energy production, but also the benefits of energy production? And unfortunately, if you connect that agenda with the the history, really, of of structural inequities in America, the the deep, deep, unfortunate commitment to extreme extraction um, and the exploitation of not only our planet, but also our most vulnerable. Um, The energy equity agenda is just as important, in my opinion, to the racial equity movement as it is the climate justice movement.
2: I know that... You talk a lot about a just transition as part of your work. Could you also explain what that is and how you're working on these issues?
0: Yes. So, you know, we're finally in this place where we are beginning to understand the effects of of fossil fuels on our planet. Um, We're beginning to understand the importance of advancing towards a clean energy economy, an economy that is not dependent upon fossil fuel. Uh, production and consumption. With that though, we also have to understand that we have a legacy um, in the history of the utilization of fossil fuels of again, exploitation uh, of extreme extraction um, and of an economy that did not work for everyone. Um, We're beginning to transition now um, towards this clean energy economy, an economy that is of course cleaner and hopefully more of a regenerative economy than a extractive economy. With all of that being said, if we're not doing what we can to ensure that as we transition, that we don't leave black communities and historically disinvested communities behind, if we don't work to ensure that all communities have a chance to not only participate and benefit from this transition, then the transition that we are advancing is only replacing one oppressive economic system with another.
2: So just to put a finer point on that, I think a lot of people think greener, cleaner, better. You're saying if we don't get that transition right, then that new green economy could actually use the same oppressive systems of the past. Is that a concern?
0: I mean, exactly. I mean, I tell my friends in the environmental community a lot that we will never get to true sustainability without justice being at the center of it. You know, I I pose a question to my friends a lot, you know, can a uh, community or nation be truly sustainable and resilient if it is not just? And we owe uh, many, many communities because of the unfortunate history of racial oppression to get it right this time as we transition into a, a clean energy economy. And without doing that, I do believe that we'll be replacing one oppressive and extractive economy with another.
2: So what would be some examples of where leaders got it right? Do you have a couple of those in mind?
0: Yeah, so so I, you know, I you know, there are many many positive examples of, you know, great work being done on the ground to ensure that Communities of color and in particular black communities have a chance to participate and participate and benefit from the clean energy economy. One of is one example, and I actually I'll give two examples coming out of Baltimore. I, I know that there are many unfortunate conversations that are being lifted up about Baltimore and the and the challenges that it is facing um, as a community, but there are also examples of incredible work being done around advancing energy equity. One is an example of a a great organization called Groundswell who is uh, working, they're working to advance a community solar agenda that is equitable in the nation. They're working with uh, actually a church um, called Empowerment Temple, a 10,000 member church in Baltimore, Maryland to uh, advance a community solar project, which is now primarily a rooftop solar project, but it is creating energy for the community and the church It's also providing a learning opportunity for uh, the students that are part of their uh, school system. And even more so, it is beginning the process of, of teaching and showing communities of color how solar can actually work for them. Uh, There's another example being led by a former Baltimore uh, Raven star, Ray Lewis. Uh, His organization, Power 52, is working to train a new workforce around the clean energy economy by by creating three resilient hubs in public housing in Baltimore's target investment zone. Um, He's leveraging these resilient hubs as an opportunity to train the community. And and last but certainly not least, we're working um, in Atlanta, The partnership of Southern Equity with the Atlanta University Center, which is the largest conglomerate of historically Black colleges and universities, along with Groundswell and Georgia Tech, uh, to create an urban equity, energy equity resilience hub, where we are again working to create a microgrid that will provide not only PV capacity, but also storage capacity that will actually support the energy needs of low-income communities surrounding the Atlanta University Center, as well as the Atlanta University Center complex.
2: Interesting. I think that's really helpful to get some specifics around what this could really look like on the ground. Yes. Uh, To take the other side of the coin though, what would be an example of where this has not gone well, where you think that communities have been left out of energy decision-making that has been negative for them?
0: Yes, and you know, you know, Julia, I'm always the person that attempts to to look at a problem as a glass half full as opposed to a glass half empty. But unfortunately, we do have uh, very uh, sad and uh, inequitable examples of what happens when um, a clean energy future does not include equity as a key component of it. One unfortunate example, it has occurred in Georgia through uh, the expansion of our nuclear power plant, plant Vogel. Um, Right now, um, it is over $3 billion um, over budget. Um, Even with the recommendations of the Public Service Commission staff, uh, it continues um, regardless of the challenges that it has created, not only in terms of the cost for uh, the customers, but also the predominantly African-American community that surrounds Plant Vogel is a community called Shell Bluff, a community that has major, major problems as it relates to poverty and economic opportunity. They have not received the benefits that were promised to them as, as it pertains to the expansion of Plant Vogel. And also there were many, many challenges as it relates to the Public Service Commission actually listening to the community concerns and they chose, unfortunately, to side with uh, the utility versus the voices of the community, even though they had been elected as the Public Service Commission. Um, so there are many, many unfortunate um, Components to plant Vogel, but I would definitely lift that up as an example of what not to do and and, and what happens when energy equity is not a central component of our uh, sojourn towards a clean energy future.
2: I know that other folks working on nuclear issues have brought that up as well and are looking at advanced nuclear solutions as a way to remedy some of those uh, missteps of the past. Uh, you mentioned, though, having a seat at the table and being part of decision making. What do you think is a way to get more uh, people of color at that table? I've spoken to, to folks in the past who just say they actually get edged out. They can't make it to, to public utility meetings, things like that. What is a way to make sure that those voices are heard in the decision making process?
0: Well, first and foremost, I believe that the environmental community has to begin to look at Black communities and communities that have been historically disinvested in as a key component of the environmental movement. Uh, Unfortunately, there is a history of marginalization uh, within the environmental movement as it pertains to not only the needs of communities of color, but the history as well as the assets and perspectives that these communities bring and could bring to the movement. So we have to do an attitude adjustment within the context of our environmental movement. You know, There are many times that I've been in the room and I've been the only person of color, in particular the only black male invited to that conversation. Uh, the environmental movement will not succeed without it being more inclusive and in actually lifting up leaders that may not necessarily look like the traditional environmental leadership community. Um, second, you know, it is not enough to encourage communities of color and black communities to be at the table. We must do what we can to ensure that we educate them on where the challenges are and where the opportunities are for advocacy the partnership of Southern Equity, we do a place-based educational effort called More Money, More Power, where we're going into the community and actually educating and training them um, about the various challenges and opportunities associated with uh, the clean energy economy. Who are the individuals that are making policy decisions as it relates to their you know, uh, utility bill and, and all of these other key things that the community will need to know in order to be effective advocates for their communities as it relates to climate justice and energy equity. So we have to be very focused on our training and agency building work as it relates to the communities that have been marginalized, as well as look at them as a key component to the change that we seek as it relates to climate change and, and equity. Um, And and last but certainly not least, um, you know, it it is very, very important um, for us to not only train um, and provide, you know, opportunities for agency as relates to their engagement, as well as looking at them as valuable. We must be very uh, forthright, strategic and committed um, to placing those communities um, in, in the front of our movement. And, and look at them as leaders in our movement. And that, is, that only means that we put them in front as leaders, but we also work to ensure that the resources that many of our environmental organizations receive to do this work are also funneled into these organizations that are led by communities of color that are involved in the environmental movement.
2: Great. So we talked about the just transition, and we talked about that in terms of the new green economy, clean energy, and making sure that communities of color are brought into that, and black communities in particular. I'm wondering how you think about the transition of formerly fossil fuel communities, communities that are transitioning out of fossil fuels. Some of those communities are in other parts of the country, maybe more rural, maybe whiter. Is that part of the same conversation in your mind, or is that a different element of this?
0: I mean, it has to be. I mean, it it has to be a part of this movement. And and, and on many occasions, the the conversations and the, and the work around a just transition can be focused sometimes exclusively on communities of color. And, and there's a reason for that. I mean, communities of color have been have suffered a great deal as a result of energy decision making. At the same time, we have to be sensitive and and have a broader understanding of, for example you know, our friends in Appalachia or in cold country um, that unfortunately have to choose between their livelihood and their health. Um, That is a crime and and no human being should have to make that choice the same way that in some communities in urban areas, mothers and fathers are being forced between paying their utility bill or buying groceries. Um, It all is a justice issue, and and we all have to figure out a way to work to ensure that as we transition, that all communities benefit from it. I mean, one clear opportunity, and particularly in rural areas, is engagement around rural electric co-ops and and how rural communities are receiving energy and how we can leverage rural electric co-ops through an energy democracy agenda to leverage those resources in a way that will create new clean energy opportunities for those individuals that are depending on fossil fuels for their livelihood to transition towards a clean energy economy. But we have to be more forthright and more committed to ensuring that we can um, to to ensuring that all communities understand the importance of the just of a just transition, and that we actually use this conversation about a trust, just transition as a bridge. Um, uh, not only from a racial perspective, but from a demographic perspective um, between various people who need to be a part of the same movement.
2: Two last quick questions um, in our final remaining minutes here. One, I wanted to quickly touch on COVID-19. It has disproportionately hit black communities and other communities of color, indigenous communities. I'm wondering what you would like to see in response from leaders to help tackle that issue in your communities. And you can frame that through an immediate response or through the recovery and how you may see that playing out. Do you have some thoughts there?
0: Well, I think you know the the, the challenges around COVID nineteen have really elevated uh, the historical challenges that Black people and communities of color have faced in America, and how structural injustices have um, created the conditions for um, a weakened, not only immune system for communities of color and and Black people, but also weakened communities, and so. You know, I juxtapose this conversation with also the advancement of uh, resilience, you know, the importance of a resilience uh, agenda as it relates to urban and rural communities. I mean, both of them cannot just focus on recovery, um, recovering from COVID-19 or recovering from um, Uh, 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 you know, through a resilient strategy, we've got to begin to focus on not just surviving, but thriving. And and I think that the the issues and opportunities around COVID-19, as well as our work around resilience, or even the challenges that we face around the uprisings that we're experiencing, have to begin the process of thinking about What are the structural injustices that have brought us to this point? And whether it be around um, looking to see how being car dependent has created unhealthy communities where asthma rates are high for African-Americans in urban areas. What does that then mean to solve that problem by creating more walkable communities or uh, utilizing public transportation policies um, as a way to advance equity? what does it mean to also begin the process if we know that in impoverished communities the housing is not healthy and that again connects to the challenges around COVID-19 or our resilience work. What does it mean to leverage the, the resources of our utilities as well as other donors to advance a healthy housing agenda where not only are we working to ensure that these houses are more energy efficient and healthy, but we're also leveraging this opportunity to do workforce development programs. So the people who live in those communities have a chance to learn how to do energy audits and and weatherize homes as well as solar. So, I mean, I think that there's an opportunity, yes, to, to acknowledge and I think COVID-19 and the uprisings have forced us to acknowledge a history of structural racism and white supremacy in America. But that should not be an end to, our, 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 to the challenges that we're facing. We've gotta to begin to not only acknowledge, but also begin to leverage policies um, as a way to turn the page in order to undo some of the structural challenges that we're facing in our communities. And COVID-19 again, um, has uh, exposed that, and and I think now is the time for us to begin to work together to solve many of the problems that we've turned away from because we felt they've been too complicated to solve.
2: Um, we only have one minute left. I just wanted to quickly get this in. What's going to get black voters out in 2020? I know we're running a little behind on schedule, so it'd be great to keep this short. But I think it's important to note. What do candidates have to keep in mind if they want the black communities vote? In your mind.
0: Well, I think, you know, in the immortal words of Aretha Franklin, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, I mean, I think that um, it's going to be important for anyone who wants the Black vote to work to ensure that their policies reflect a level of respect that they have for those communities. You know, it's not just about advancing a guilt trip on Black people um, that they should vote for a certain candidate, because you know they should, or they're not committed to the black community because they don't vote for a particular candidate. Black people are looking for real policies, real solutions, and real solutions. They're not looking for uh, flowery talk, or you know they they want to they want to see real policy. They want to see real um, uh, empathy from the candidates in terms of you know, them through their policies, again, not just their words, uh, you know, through empathy, you know, through an empathy frame, show to show that they really care and understand what they're going through. And, and that has to be manifested, you know, in, through, through the public policy recommendations that are being made. And then I also think that, you know, we, we have a very unique opportunity to finally um, injure and maybe kill the, the 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 most major pandemic that we've dealt with in our nation's history, and that is structural racism. And I think that it's going to be important for any candidate to be willing to fight and and try to inoculate America finally from that virus. And 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 and, and I think the Black community will support emphatically anyone that is willing to 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 try to inoculate us from this challenge and even more so translate their plans for inoculating our communities uh, through public policy and community engagement.
2: And that marks the end of the Path to Zero series. It's certainly not the end of our coverage on what it will take to meet science-based climate targets, But as we noted, we'll now be focusing one episode each month on what it will take to rebuild the U.S. economy in a more inclusive, sustainable, and prosperous way. You can easily find all of our Path to Zero episodes via the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening. Have a safe, happy, healthy July 4th, and we'll be back next week.